0: If you take your Bibles, please, and turn to the Gospel of John, Gospel of John, we're going to continue our exposition in this glorious gospel, continuing in chapter 4, and our text is verse 20 to 26, if you'll find your place there. Uh, If you didn't realize through the singing, or or even last week you were here, we made it up to verse twenty. Uh, the theme today is on worship, the very thing we've been doing, the very thing we're continuing to do through the preaching of God's Word. And so it might be good to ask the question, what is worship? What is worship? Worship is an expression and uh, of reverence towards a deity, right? And so... Um, and it's an expression uh, directed to a deity. It's God-centered. We are here to exalt God. And I think uh, Joshua had this for a call to worship. I already had it in my notes in the introduction, Psalm 96. Ascribe to the Lord the glory of his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord with holy attire. Many questions in our day about what worship is. Some think that it's merely like, do we sing choruses or do we sing hymns? You know, how do you, how do you like your worship served up? With gravy or without gravy? You know, that kind of thing. Um, it's more than just singing hymns. Worship is derived from the term worth He is worthy of our praise and our adoration, Proskineo is the Greek verb that, that for worship, and it means to prostrating oneself, even kissing the feet or a hem of a gar- garment. It's an expression of attitude or gesture, and one's complete dependence and submission to a high authority. So that's what we have come to do. We here at Grace Bible Church hold to the London Baptist 1689 Confession of Faith, and there's a whole chapter devoted to worship. So your homework is to go read chapter 22 of the London Baptist Confession of Faith. But I'm going to read for you the very first paragraph. The light of nature shows that there is a God who has lordship and sovereign over all. He is just, good, and does good unto all, and is therefore to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in, and served with all the heart and all the soul and all the might. But the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and is so limited to his revealed will that he may not be worshiped according to the imaginations and the devices of men or the suggestions of Satan, or under any visible representations, or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. Now I know that was a bit of a mouthful, but you understand what that's saying. There's cautions. Worship is a serious business. Worship is a privilege. The psalmist says in Psalm 95, come, Let us worship and bow down, let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. It's a privilege to worship God. Arthur Pink said, worship is a redeemed heart occupied with God. A redeemed heart occupied with God, expressing itself in adoration and thanksgiving our Old Testament reading, I picked Exodus 15, you just heard it read, and you're hearing. But that's a fascinating scene here. I mean, you remember the context, Moses goes before Pharaoh 10 times, there's 10 plagues. Finally, the, the people go, the sea is divided. Um, it's hard not to, I'm reading Exodus right now, just to kind of camp here for a minute. But suddenly they cross on dry ground, all the Egyptians are drowned, and what do they do? Boy, let's make some distance in case a couple come out, come swimming out of out of the the, the sea. No, they said we're going to have a worship service. We're going to praise our God right here on the beach, even with Egyptian bodies floating by, and they give God praise. He's highly to be exalted. The greatness of your excellence. I mean, you who is like you, majestic in holiness. You see, God's people should not. Be reserved when it comes to worshiping God. So let's look now, John 4. I'm going to read 20 to 30 to get the fuller context, but we're only going to expound to verse 26. Now, this is obviously the context of the woman at the well. She asked the question, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, An hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. Salvation is of the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. And when he comes, he will declare all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. At this point, the disciples came and they were amazed that he's been speaking to a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek or why do you speak with her? So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, come, come. See a man who told me all things that I have done. Is this not, this is not the Christ, is it? And they went out of the city and they were coming to him. Let's pray. Father, indeed, we understand the seriousness of worship. And even now, Lord, for each one of us to gird up the loins of our mind, as it were, to quicken our hearts, to listen to your word, O God, O God. Lord, help us to come as hungry disciples, wanting to learn, to be instructed. Lord, we want to be better worshipers, to give you the glory and adoration that's due your name, to so draw near, we ask, in Christ's name, amen. amen. <laughs> so we'll continue this theme. We took up a whole nineteen twenty verses last week on the woman at the well, and we noticed the contrast between chapter 3 and chapter 4. We see Jesus reaches out to a needy people because all men are fallen in Adam and all have the same need. But Nicodemus, he's the educated one. He's a man. He's, he's highly respected. He's wealthy, compared to the woman in Samaria that's poor and unschooled and despised and a woman, and even a moral outcast. And so you see already in John 3 and 4, the, the, John the Evangelist is painting pictures of Christ's compassion to the lost, and the, the, the diversity there. You remember that, that um, back in verse 4 it said that he had to go through Samaria, and most of the Jews would actually go around Samaria because it's where the half-breeds were, but he had to. And he had to, and it's the same word that's used of must. You must be born again. Jesus must be lifted up earlier in John chapter 3. And he had to because he, 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 he needed to go because of the human necessity. These were a despised, this is a lost people. It was a necessity that he went. So he comes to a well and he's wearied and it's probably midday. And the disciples go to get food, and so Jesus has now set all these things in order so that the woman would come and he would be able to engage her. He's breaking all the social, all the cultural norms. A man and a woman didn't even talk in public typically, and especially a Jewish man with a Samaritan woman. Jesus is a soul-seeking Savior, and he comes with compassion for the outcast. And then she still doesn't get it when he says that I have living water. If you knew the gift of God, you would say, give me a drink. And she still can't get it. She's still thinking literally, give me this water so I'll never thirst again. She still doesn't understand who she's speaking with. So as we come to our text today, she asks the question, she brings up the, the, the subject of worship. Where is the proper place to Worship. Jesus answers her question in a threefold way. Worship in Mount Gerizim and even Jerusalem will be obsolete. Salvation number 2, salvation comes from the Jews. Number 3, the nature of true worship. So we'll consider this under four points. Worship will no longer be tied to a location. Secondly, the Father is seeking sincere worshipers. Thirdly, we'll see the woman's response to Jesus and then more application of um, worship. So, worship will no longer be tied to a location. Jesus says, "Jesus said to her, woman, believe me. It's, uh, it's the force of truly, truly, believe me. An hour is coming, an hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. The place of worship is about to be Obsolete. Therefore, a prolonged debate about the proper mountain or city of worship is not necessary. But what's shocking here is that Jesus, the Jew, right, says that not even in Jerusalem will worship be taking place. So we need to remind ourselves, first of all, what was the nature of old covenant worship. The Jews worshiped with an earthly system, as it were, and all of those pointed to Christ, right? But if you desired to be near to God in the Old Covenant, you would go to the temple and to Jerusalem. Um, you could only approach God through animal sacrifice, so you didn't come empty-handed. And then you even had to go through priestly mediators. Quite a contrast to New Covenant worship today. Verse 22, he says, You worship what you do not know, we worship what we know, for salvation is of the jews despite all the sincerity all the eagerness that the samaritans have had that they were ignorant of the one that they were worshiping indeed listen to don carson and his commentary the object of their worship is unknown to the samaritans their worship was outside of the flow of god's revelation so that they so that their worship cannot poss- their worship cannot be possibly characterized by truth and knowledge. Kind of reminds me of the Apostle Paul and his journeying through Athens in <laughs> Acts 17. And he, he, he comes there and he, and he sees all these idols there and he's broken in his heart. And it said, he says, For I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, and I even found an altar with the inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore what you worship in ignorance I proclaim to you. The Samaritans really didn't understand who They were worshiping. Now, way back in Deuteronomy um, chapter 12, verses 5 and 6, the law says, But you shall seek the Lord at a place which the Lord your God will choose from all of your tribes to establish his name there, his dwelling there shall you come. There you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices and your tithes and your contribution of your hand and your votive offerings and will offerings and firstborn of your herd of your flock. And so this would ultimately become where the temple is in Jerusalem. So what you have here is Jesus actually announcing something that God has commanded in the Old Testament, that that is coming to an end, and that is worship in a particular location. It's a shocking thing. Why? Well, that's because Jesus uh, ushers in a new eschatological hour. An hour is coming! There's something radically that's changing from all of this, the the millennia of the old covenant. Jesus fulfills all the old covenant types and shadows. He is the Lamb of God, John the Baptist told us in chapter 1. He is the final sacrifice for sin that would be slaughtered on our behalf. He is the great and final high priest by which he can have compassion upon us. He is the new temple, John chapter 2, we saw destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up again, speaking of himself. Salvation is from the Jews since Messiah comes from the Jews. Now what evidences do we have that this old earthly way of worship is abolished? Obviously, this passage is, is one of them. But remember what happened towards the end of the six hours on the cross when Jesus cried out and said, It is finished. That veil in the temple was ripped from top to bottom. And Charlie probably knows, I think it's 18 inches thick of, of right? This, this wasn't like a piece of paper, okay? This was something supernatural that God had done to show. Furthermore, Ephesians chapter 2, actually turn back there, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Something radical has taken place. The dividing wall has been broken down. Therefore, remember that formerly you Gentiles in the flesh. Who were called the uncircumcision by the so called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ for he himself is our peace. He has made both groups into one. He's broke down the barrier and dividing wall by abolishing it in his flesh, the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in the ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both into one body. You see how many times the one, 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 there's no longer two peoples of God. He's broke down the, the barrier wall. There's no longer Jew and Gentile, as we read in Galatians chapter three. Not quite warm enough to have a fan, and my pages keep blowing around. <laughs> okay, turn, turn turn to Galatians three now. Though so we just read this earlier, but The law has become a tutor to lead us to Christ so that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under the tutor. And you are sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. You see, it's like my friend that's now gone to be home with the Lord many years ago, Tony M.G., used to say "Is that the little girls play with dolls, right? But when they grow up and they become women, they actually have their own babies and they put the dolls aside. So to go back to the old covenant is to go back and get the dolls out, right? And so, hopefully you get the analogy. So the new spiritual worship that Jesus brings is not tied to a geographical location. Even in Malachi 1 verse 11 for from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. In every place, increase incense is going to be offered in my name, and grain that is offering that is pure, and my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord. Of great importance now for us is not where we worship, but how we worship. How we worship, brethren, is all important today. Now why, there's some religious people today that kind of want to go back and promote that earthly, um, old covenant type of worship. Let me just give you a few examples that I'm sure you are aware of. Just think of some of the massive temples and cathedrals that are built. It's kind of like trying to say this location is more holy than any other location, something along those lines. Even um, magnificent cathedrals actually distract from God's glory. J.C. Ryle in Livermore, England, I think we were there over 20 years ago. Actually, 25 years ago, you were pregnant with Carissa, Jen. Um, so we were, we were able, in Livermore there, visiting a pastor, and, and went to the cathedral that was built in honor of J.C. Ryle. And they even had his tomb right there in, in the middle. It's, it was magnificent. And apparently they tried to build that cathedral for like 20 years before he died, and he just said, absolutely no, it's a waste of money and all of that. And so as soon as the guy dies, you know, another year later, they build this massive cathedral. But how can a cathedral actually help us to see God's glory? It's crazy to think that in all his grandeur and beauty that it could be adequately reflected by anything made with human hands. Actually, it's better to worship God simply in spirit and in truth. What about human mediators and human priests? You see that in certain circles, don't you, that you go into a confessional. Or even how about this? The clergy wear certain vestments and robes to make them look like, you know, something like Old Testament priests, Old Covenant priests. Or elevating man to such a status of of the Pope where everybody bows down and, and as it were, kisses his ring. Even some Christians are guilty of thinking earthly, like in in their worship. They tend to go into certain church buildings and say, Ah, this is extra special. God's presence is really here. Even maybe some of you have felt that way. Or how about this? Exalting men and calling them reverend and father and these types of things the roman catholic church even perverted the ordinance of the lord's supper that we just enjoyed in our prayer meeting earlier but they how they perverted that ordinance remember jesus said it is finished on the cross there's no more sacrifice to be made for sin but they do it as an ongoing sacrifice in the mass it's absolute blasphemy to crucify christ repeatedly every single day Superstition and relics. Hey, you can buy this splinter of wood that we believe was part of Christ's cross. Now, how special would that be? Look at this wood, brother, you know? You know, all of these kind of superstitions and all of that, we need to set those aside. Secondly, today, the Father is seeking sincere worshipers. Jesus repeats and says, But an hour is coming, and now is? when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is seeking worshipers. Why? So that he can satisfy thirsty sinners. An hour is coming and now is. How does that even make sense? Is that some kind of double talk? An hour is coming, it's yet future, but but it's now here. What are you saying, Christ? Help us to understand it's because now, by his very presence, the hour has come. Messiah has come. What is it to worship in spirit? In fact, the very nature of God helps us to define worship, right? God is spirit. God is spirit. God is light. God is love. God is spirit. When it says that God is spirit, it's much more than saying, like the children's catechism, you know, uh, what is God, or does God have a body like, like we, no, he does not have a body like, uh, God is spirit and does not have a body like you and I, I believe is the answer. Uh, but it's much more than the fact that he doesn't have a body and that he's not material. It speaks of something that is living, something that is dynamic. It speaks of uh, of something that's powerful. It's in the realm of the living. It's in the realm of the even the divine. Therefore, our worship must be in the realm of the Spirit. How do you worship in the Spirit? How are you worshiping right now? Well, first of all, you have to be spiritually alive. I mean, in John 6.63, he says, it is the Spirit that gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. You have to be born again. Back in chapter 3 with Nicodemus in verse 5 and 6, he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. But also we need the assistance of the Spirit. We're weak, men and women. Even, even, even the, the, the best of us are, are weak. And so it says in Romans 8.26, in the same way the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Our worship must be sincere, not half-hearted, God takes his worship seriously. Listen to, I mean, I could have listed three dozen verses from the Old Testament, but Isaiah 29.13, Then the Lord said, Because this people draws near to me with their words, and they honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me, and their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. That's quite a pronouncement. It's easier to go through the outward motions of worship than to worship from the heart. Amos chapter 5 and verse 21, you don't have to turn there. <clears throat> I hate and I reject your festivals. Nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer up to me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. I will not even look at the peace offerings as your fattings. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sound of your harps, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. It's a pronouncement upon an old covenant community that was going through the motions and there was no heart. Those are warnings for us, I think. If, if God was so detestable to, to the Jews in the old covenant, how much more we are privileged to be in the new covenant if we come half-heartedly, offering lip service, It's easier to go through the outward motions than to worship from the heart. And that's why human nature would prefer to just tell me to say ten Hail Marys and and five Our Fathers and everything will be good. God will be looking upon you with pleasure. No! And we can't go back to the old ways. I mean, even the Galatians says, but now you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, How is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless and elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? An hour is coming, and now is. It's a dawning hour that's coming. It's speaking of, John uses it several times throughout his gospel. It speaks of of a special dawning of, of the Lord Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection and his exaltation. But also that true worship around them is now centered on the ministry of Jesus. Turn to John five and verse 21. I'm sorry, 25. You see it the same thing here. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live." Verse 28, do not marvel at this. An hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs Will hear his voice. This is a powerful, powerful passage I can't wait to get to. If you want to read a sermon on it, Samuel Davies uh, has an excellent sermon on that text. When all will hear his voice and the tombs will be open, what a scene that will be. And so here what we have in our text, it's an advance, right? From verse 21. Twenty-one, it's just an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem. But here it's an hour is coming and now is. Speaking of of this this worship, it's a powerful way of asserting that Jesus is, that that hour is even now here in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what does it mean? It says twice, worship in spirit and in truth. So what does that mean? Well, I think we can probably conclude it's in the realm of the spirit, it has to be according to biblical truth, For sure. By the way, there's only one preposition here, so it's in spirit and truth, so they are intimately linked together. They contribute to each other. As we worship in truth, we worship in spirit. As we worship in the spirit, it's according to truth. It should be understood as a new kind of place, not a literal place, but it's in the realm of the spirit that we worship. And it's (laughs) actually it, remember we've been looking at the, the must, you must be born again, uh, 3.14, Jesus Christ must be lifted up, Jesus must go through Samaria, well here is yet another must, it's absolutely necessary, it's emphatic, and so it says that God is spirit and those who worship him must, must worship him in spirit and in truth, it's absolutely necessary. Now, there's, extre- there's two extremes in our day. There's some that have a dead orthodoxy, right? They might have a confession of faith and some truth, but there's literally no life to it, right? It's just a, a dead orthodoxy. But, or those who are overzealous, and they have all spirit, but it's not balanced by truth, and so they get themselves in trouble. Uh, Don Carson, again, says, "...under the eschatological conditions..." Of the dawning hour, true worshipers cannot be identified by their attachment to a particular shrine, but their worship to the Father and Spirit and in truth. God made possible by the Holy Spirit in conformity to God's truth. So, a wrong conception about God leads to what? Idolatry, right? It ultimately leads to false worship. If you have the wrong conception about God, I mean, John Calvin said, "What our mind is an idol factory, right? And so it has to be according to truth. He gives the Spirit without limit. We saw that back in 3.14, 3.34, rather. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, and he gives the Spirit without measure abundantly so that when we gather together, we can sing with William Cooper, Jesus, wherever your people meet, there they behold your mercy seat. Wherever they seek you, you are found, and every place is hallowed ground. The beautiful hymn we should sing soon, but uh, that just captures it, doesn't it? Wherever your people meet, it's hallowed ground. We can see the mercy seat. Powerful. Secondly, under this head, Jesus, our Messiah, enables us to worship God spiritually. The spiritual worship he brings is the living water compared to the earthly water. Remember, the woman's thirsty at the well. Jesus is thirsty. He offers her this living water. And so this spiritual worship is like the living water. In 4.13, Jesus answered and said, "'Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again.'" But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become like a well of water springing up to eternal life. So it's not just living water, it's that you become a veritable well. Jesus enables us to worship because he makes us new creatures in Christ. He gives the Holy Spirit enabling us to worship. John 7 Jesus says he who believes in me as the scripture has said from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water but this he spoke of the spirit whom this he spoke of the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive and the spirit was not yet given for Jesus had not yet been glorified worship has to be sincere from the heart you have those rebukes to the pharisees where Jesus calls them out you being present in the church is not worship. Just because you're sitting here today is not necessarily worship. If you mindlessly sing the hymns and you daydream during the sermon, don't pat yourself on the back that somehow you've, you've gone to church and you've worshiped. Some come and they participate with the wrong motives. They just want to feel good, good about themselves. They want to feel good for the next week. Kind of like a, a lucky charm or something. You know, carrying the bulletin around. Ah, I was at church last week. And that's wrong. It's an insult to God's glory and majesty. You see, worship takes effort. It, it takes concentration, It takes a mind that is quickened and rested and prepared adequately. You know, we live in a mentally lazy culture. In fact, many who enter the the, the doors of certain churches simply want to be entertained. There's so many here in San Diego that they believe worship is like watching a performance. And sadly, many megachurches give them just that. They tickle the ears. They give them what they want. They want the fog machine. They get the fog machine. They want the performance and all of that. Um, and, 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 you know, whether it's pottery classes or drama or the rock band or the comedian or the clowns, they bring all these up for entertainment to the people. And even now, it's drag queens that they bring some of these churches. Unbelievable. This is what we call man-centered worship, because it's appealing to man. Oh, God is not pleased, rest assured. It's appealing to man. And that's why when we say we have God-centered worship, that's, it's about him. I'm sorry if you're not entertained. It's about him. We're just doing what we can to help you to see something of the, the incredible glory of God, the, 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 the compassion of Christ. The love of Christ. Well, let me ask you, are you a sincere worshiper? Remember, I said it's not where you worship, it's how you worship that counts. You see, the Father is a saving God, and that's why he's seeking sinners to worship him. He's seeking, as it were, God-seekers. If you come to seek God, the Father is seeking such as this. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. Father is seeking such a people to worship him. Now now this can be taken the wrong way, thinking that God is lonely, and so he's just seeking people to give him attention, that he's insecure, away with such foolishness. He seeks because of his great love and his great benevolence toward a fallen humanity. This is the one who is worthy, who is seeking to give us joy, by doing that, Hebrews twelve twenty eight. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude that we may offer to God an acceptable sacrifice. How, with reverence in awe for our God, is a consuming fire. Worship should be with wholehearted devotion. The psalmist says, "Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless the Lord." Bless his holy name. It's a pure devotion and a love to Christ, like Peter articulates in the first chapter of his first letter, where he says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but you believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. See, though we do not see him, we love him. He died for me. It was my sins that he took upon himself on the cross. And though we do not see him now, we believe that these things are true. And then what is that? The response is that we rejoice with joy, unexpressible. If you're not a Christian, you can't worship God. I know you can go light a candle, you can go sit in a confessional, you can, do, you can do all the earthly things you want, but you can't truly worship God if you're outside of Christ. And if you're outside of Christ, you need to hear the bad news that you are a sinner worthy of eternal damnation in a place called hell. But the good news is that Jesus came to die for sinners. You must look to him, you must believe in him. You must turn from your sin and throw your sin away. Throw your good works away. Your good works is just as damnable as your sins are. They need to be thrown away and come empty-handed. Simply to your cross, I cling. Wholehearted devotion. We need a healthy balance of that seriousness, right? That what we're doing, we're engaging in something serious but joy. I just read it earlier, This, this uh, in Hebrews, it says, uh, let us come with service with reverence and awe. But then in 1 Peter, it says that we rejoice with joy unexpressible and full of glory. So, so there are two truths that, that are parallel truths that we need to have the right balance. The Bible gives us all kinds of expressions of worship, singing, giving praise, prayer, on our knees, lifting of hands and praise, lifting of hands and prayer, bowing, playing instruments and shouting, all of that. So ask yourself, am I a sincere worshiper? Well, we've seen worship is not tied to a location, and God is seeking worshipers. More briefly, let's consider the woman's response to these powerful words of Christ. Verse 25. The woman said to him. I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When the one comes, he will declare all things to us. Notice what she does not say. We don't see her in this verse bowing down. Oh, Jesus, you are a fountain of love and you are a mountain of mercy. Oh, I want to worship you. We don't have that here, right? In fact, it's it's far from that. She still doesn't get who he is. She she states something like she knows something, probably prompted by the eschatological language of an hour is coming, and that made her think, ah, Messiah is coming someday. And um, it, it made her think like that. They didn't they didn't refer to it as Messiah. The the Samaritans referred to this one as Teheb. Or the restorer, um, because they awaited the prophet that Moses said in Deuteronomy 18 that a prophet will come after me like me. But it's almost as though she says, "Ah, Jesus, I know something too. I I know something, Mister Jewish man. I understand. You know, I get kind of what you're saying here, Mister Jewish man. I don't know who you are yet, but Messiah is coming." It's as though she's saying, I'm not sure about your words so much, but when Messiah comes, he'll declare all things. Look at the end of verse 25. When that one comes, when that one comes, he will declare all things to us. It's almost as though she kind of questions. She's not convinced about Christ's words just yet. And she says, but Messiah will come. Well, you know the verse. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Literally, ego, I me, mean, in the original, which means, I am. Where do we know that from? Right? Right? We know that. Exodus 3. Such words would be a profound statement to her. Uh, Moses asked, who should I say is sending me? And, and God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent you. It's really the I am as I am he. It's an invitation to come into the arms of the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. Just as we'll see the seven other uh, I am's that I am the door, I am the good shepherd, I am the light throughout this gospel. I am. It's an invitation not just for the Jews but for half-breed Samaritans and outcasts and despised. For the lowest in the gutter, it's an invitation to any and all who will come to Him. I don't think she fully gets it yet, even after this, because when she runs into town, and this is why I read this, she comes to the men, uh, or to a man, and told him, or sorry, she goes to the men of the city. And she says, come see a man who told me all things about my five husbands, and the one that I have is not my husband. And then look at what she says, um, everything I've done. This is not the Christ, is it? It could be. Come and verify that. And so obviously she will believe. Jesus will go, we'll see this next week, and spend two days there. And it's not about a mountain, it's not about water, it's about Christ. And the whole area believes some final applications for you, practical things. First of all, God takes his worship seriously. I know I keep saying it. That's because it's a serious thing, right? Um, and he has prescribed how to be worshiped. We have in the Old Testament, Nadab and Abihu and Leviticus 10 The sons of Aaron took their respective fire pans, and putting fire in them, placed incense on it, and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from the presence of the Lord, and consumed them. Notice that. They offered fire that had not been prescribed. That's kind of like doing something in church that God has not prescribed Let's try this. Let's try that. Why were they consumed? They offered strange fire. How about Second Samuel 6? You remember Uzzah? Remember the fellow Uzzah? As they're bringing the ark back, and he reached out to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen nearly upset it, and the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, and God struck him down there for his irreverence. Now, another saying my friend Tony M.G. used to say is that he had good intentions. He thought his hands were cleaner than the dirt on the ground. He was already previously instructed, do not touch the ark. That's why they were carrying it on the poles, but it began to topple, and he tried to steady it, and he thought his hands were cleaner. Well, there goes a water bottle. (laughs) Now, what are the elements of New Covenant worship? It's good to spend a minute Um, a couple minutes on this here. So we practice what's called the regulative principle of worship. Well, what's the opposite of that? The normative principle of worship. Martin Luther was an advocate. He was great on justification by faith, but he's like, if it's not forbidden in the Bible, it's allowed. That's why you have the altar, crucifixes, stained glass, images of Christ, and all of that typically in Lutheran churches. The regular principle says if it's not clearly commanded that we are to do, we don't do it. Okay? We're not free to decide to have, hey, we're going to next week we're going to skip the sermon. We got about six of us that have been practicing this drama skit, and we're just going to do drama instead of a sermon. And see how you like that, you know. And don't worry, it'll have a message in it. No, 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 no. You know, Candles and images and like one church had painting stations during the preaching come up and paint how you're feeling. All kinds of weird stuff that's out there. Listen, brethren, the simplicity of New Testament worship is this, Acts 2.42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to breaking of bread, and to prayer. So, what is prescribed the preaching of the word, preach the word in season and out of season, Paul tells Timothy. The reading of the scriptures, you've heard in new Old Testament and New Testament. First Timothy 4.13, give attention to the reading of the scriptures. Giving of ourselves to prayer, First Timothy 2.1 and 2. Singing of spiritual songs, Ephesians 5.18, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, and making a melody in your heart to the God, to the Lord. The giving of your tithes and offerings. 1 Corinthians 16.2 where it talks about on the first day of the week, bring an offering for the collections. And then the practice of the ordinances. Jesus said, do this. It's an imperative. It's a command and remembrance of me. And then even church discipline, keeping the church pure. That pretty much sums it up right there. <clears throat> so Concluding applications, have you received that living water that Jesus offered, this, this outcast of a woman? Have you received that living water? Our gracious God invites you to set aside the earthly things that you love so much and become his worshiper even today. To come with great sincerity to him. Some of you are burdened with so much idolatry in your life, and it's weighing you down. Some of you worship pleasure, sex, pornography, recreation, video games, and even nowadays, guess what the biggest idol is? It's probably in your pocket right now. It's probably in your pocket or in your purse. Smartphones boy, how much time do you spend on a smartphone? You know, it just struck me this week. What a, we didn't have that problem when I was growing up, <laughs> right, with the rotary thing. I didn't sit there and spend two hours around the phone, right? But we can do that with our phones now, right? It's just so entertaining. Some of you would rather drink from the muddy, the mud puddles that are going to be out there after the rain than have the living water. Will you come to the great I am today? You have to repent. You have to believe that he was the true Messiah. You have to believe that everything he said about himself as the Son of Man and the Son of God and everything he did on the cross is real and true. Secondly, since worship is so important, you have to prepare your heart to worship. And, um, you know, you just think if you had a, a lunch date. With Joe Biden, if I had a lunch date with Joe Biden, I'd probably just go. Um, you know, but I would be—I wouldn't come late. I would be on time. I would—I'd be very prepared. I'd be thinking ahead of time of you know all of that. Or Warren Buffett, the great investor, or Joe Burrow, uh, the great quarterback. You know, you, you, you would—you would prepare for that lunch. Well, practically. We need to take care of logistical things before Sunday comes. Sunday is the Lord's Day, right? It should be devoted to worship with Him and fellowship with the saints. Getting gas, going grocery shopping and all that. You get six days to do that. Why be burdened with that on the Lord's Day? And begin preparing your heart Saturday night. It's one of the reasons why most weeks, not all the time, I send an email out. This is kind of what we're going to be covering. You know, read over the passage. Be in prayer about that. Prepare your family, you men. Uh, you know, read the passage ahead of time. Be in prayer, Lord. Please make tomorrow. It's a market day of the soul. Make it special for each one of my family to prepare with prayer, and meditation. Prepare by getting proper rest too. Right? I'm kind of a night owl. I'm usually up to 11 or 12, but praise God, we're in a church where, you know, we we can still get plenty of proper rest. But rise in Sunday morning at a time to where you don't have to be rushed. Okay? To where it's making you late. God has placed you in a church that starts at 12 noon. I mean, come on! Right? I mean, purpose to give a few minutes of silent preparation. We used to at the other location uh, before coming here had a prelude. And right now we're just hurrying and scurrying about, just trying to get everything to flow properly. And we haven't done that for a while, but that doesn't mean that you in your seat cannot have two or three minutes of silent preparation before the call to worship, to clear your mind, to confess any known sin, And except for unforeseen circumstances, just seek to be here on time. If you arrive late, it distracts others and and it can be disruptive. Let us receive these instructions in the spirit in which they're given with much love and with much concern. May God help us to worship him in spirit and in truth. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word does not return void. And thank you, Lord, just for even these instructions of worshiping in spirit and in truth thank you father that you seek god seekers as it were lord make us more god seekers make us to love christ all the more make us to see the beauty of the holy trinity as revealed in the word of god let us see the beauty of the lord jesus christ as he's unveiled even in this gospel of john even as he would go to the to. to the lowly, to, to the despised, and offer living water. Lord, increase our faith that the gospel is for any, no matter what walk, race, country they live in, what age, the gospel is for any and all who will call upon him. Forgive us for those times when we are half-hearted in our worship, Lord. Quicken us. Help us to receive these instructions from you with great sobriety and eager application. In Jesus' name, amen.